0: When you have people who can like do three things, um, Elon Musk actually sent me an email about this recently. Like, they can either like solve the problem head on. If they're blocked, surface why they're blocked. Or if they don't understand it, like they don't understand their task, they ask for clarification as opposed to just like trying to like guess what they should do. If people can do those like three things, they generally are are very effective.
1: Hi, everyone. It's Rob Castillo again here on Over the Wall. And today I've got Joey Crew, the Chief Investment Officer of Pantera Capital, which is one of the largest asset managers in Crypto Web3. And as you know, I've been doing a lot of interviews recently in this topic because I think it's really fascinating. Also, there's a tremendous amount of entrepreneurs in going in. In this area, I know many of you are entrepreneurs and you're building businesses. Anytime someone comes to me and says, where should I become an entrepreneur, I go, within Crypto. They've developed something in Web3. Obviously, I started in the internet in 95, but I think this is, he has that same vibe of all the new things. And I'm really excited to have Joey here because of the investments they do and, 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 you know, what they're doing crypto and web. So Joey, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, you know, I wanted to kind of start. I usually like to start at the beginnings uh, and level set about, you know, the perspective on crypto. And, and obviously there's been a lot of negativity recently around it. And I, what I wanted to start with though, from your perspective is I think everyone had a perspective, it's a decentralized finance, it's truly DeFi. And we're saying things like with Terra Luna and all these issues in the last, a couple of months with things that don't seem decentralized. I just want to like get your perspective on that. And, you know, it's supposed to be opposite to what we get in the normal financial world, but it seemed like there's a lot of things that are similar to the, the, the traditional finance world.
0: Sure. Yes. Yeah, so and the, the way I think about that is like, if you look at the cryptocurrency space and, and smart contracts, they're very generic sorts of tools, right? And so like you can create a set of smart contracts that's completely decentralized end to end where, you know, there's no point in it that has, you know, any sort of control by any person. You can also write a smart contract that says, you know, all the money goes directly to Rob and then you trust Rob to do whatever he wants with the money. Um, and then he can choose to distribute to anyone who's, who's, you know, used this smart contract. And so it's, it's just like kind of any other, you know, piece of software. It's pretty generic in terms of what you can do. And so one thing that's sort of been a problem in the space, I would say, is you sometimes have people say, we're building XYZ and it's hundred percent decentralized. But then like, you actually look at their code and like, it's not right. Like they've, they've added centralized components. And, and sometimes those centralized components, you know, don't really matter that much, and it's and it's not really that big of a risk. They just make it easier to use. The other times, they actually add risk. Like, you know, the centralized component could steal your money. The centralized component, maybe it's a price feed, and if the price feed's wrong, maybe you, you know, your your trading position gets liquidated and extended. It's so like anything else. It's kind of a double edged sword. I guess is how I would uh, how I describe it.
1: So how would you protect yourself? Because you're right, most people don't have the capability to look at code. They're just putting money in to get a return. And so what, you know, looking at, you know, how would you kind of like figure it out if you are not so technical, you know?
0: Yeah, so I I think one thing, like if you're not super technical, the way I would think about it is if you look at the different DeFi protocols that are out there, there are some that have been around like for a very long time where there aren't like a ton of active changes, you know, happening to them all the time one good example this is something like MakerDAO. uh it's one of the first d5 protocols that ever existed been around a very long time they really like prioritize decentralization another example might be you know if, if you're looking to like trade assets on chain you know you could go to like some really really new thing that just came out two months ago or like you could use uniswap which has like been around for for years and again is is you know pretty constrained in terms of like what it is in the terms of in sense of like it's a set of smart contracts There's not really any kind of like centralized choke point on it. And as far as how you like figure it out as an end user, there's a couple of things you can do. One is you can, you know, Google and read about a project based on what people who are technical have written about it. Like if you Google Uniswap, like for instance, you could Google like Uniswap centralization and see what comes up. You'll probably see people saying that the website is centralized, but you shouldn't really see anybody saying that like the smart contracts just like the keywords you're looking for are centralized or have like centralized choke points because they don't. I mean, you might, and that would be fake news. But right. then the, the last thing you can do is like, say you're like still unsure. There's actually great like DeFi insurance that you can buy. It's so like, say you've put money in Compound, which is a lending protocol, and say you're earning 5% a year on it. You can go to sites um, that will let you buy insurance for like 50 basis points a year. And your return now drops a little bit. It goes from 5% to 4.5%. But if Compound gets hacked, if something fails in Compound, you know, it, it blows up for whatever reason, you can get your money back because the insurance contract will basically pay you out. And so that's kind of like a last, a last fallback where like even if you're unsure about everything else and have no idea what's going on technically, you can still always buy insurance for the stuff that not always. Some projects are so new they don't offer insurance, but usually you can find somewhere that, to buy it for the major protocols.
1: So that's the way to sort of protect yourself and look at how you're going to protect yourself for what's the way to do it. Mm-hmm. And if it's a DAO, we talk about DAO we talked about a couple times the DAOs here and two decentralized organizations where it's centralized, maybe you can unpack that a little bit. Like you talked about maker DAO. And talk about like wh- yeah. what is that structure? What do you look for in that? You know, how do you participate in that? You know, as a as a normal user, you know, voting rights, things like that.
0: Yeah. So, like, like the way I think about DAOs in general, so the the term is basically an acronym. It stands for decentralized autonomous organization. It's kind of a silly acronym. Uh, like, like the way I would describe it, you know, just like in a sentence, is like, you know, they're basically a collection of smart contracts where you know people across the globe can interact in some sort of commerce, which is usually a financial commerce. And so it's usually some sort of market-based thing. And so if we use MakerDAO as an example, it's one of the first ones that was ever created to set a smart contracts. The functionality at its core is pretty simple. We'll just go through Maker version one to keep it really simple. So Maker V1, you deposit Ether, you can borrow against your Ether. You're borrowing in what's called a stablecoin, so it's a cryptocurrency tagged to the dollar. And say you borrow like a lot of money, And, you know, say the ETH, if the ETH price fell 50%, you would like owe more debt than 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 money that you actually had. Well, the system has a way of dealing with that, which is as you start to get close to the point at which you would be under collateralized, say you're at like 120% collateral or something, the system will basically do what's called liquidate you. So it'll auction off your ETH, people will bid on it, and they'll basically pay back your debt and they'll get your ETH as collateral. It's the same thing that happens like if your house, you know, were to get foreclosed on because you took out some massive mortgage on it and then the housing market collapsed, you have know, 30, 40%. And so, um, but it's like with crypto assets. Uh, the same thing happens in the stock market. People have heard of like margin trading. It's, it's kind of the same thing. Maker is basically a system that allows you to borrow against your ether on margin. And there's a few different things you can do in maker. Like one is like that core set of functionality. But there's also like parameters and things that need to be decided on. Like for instance, I mentioned a collateral ratio. Like should maker be really aggressive and only liquidate you when you have like you know, 5% more capital than you need to be underwater? Or should it be very conservative and and liquidate you when you're, you know, when you only have 140%, you know, it's like, it's a pretty conservative approach there. And these sorts of things are decided on by the end users, which is why it's like called a DAO. And I guess the last thing I would say on this is the way those decisions get made is people who own the Maker Token basically have voting rights in this DAO. And it's one token, one vote. Uh, so, like if you own 100 maker tokens, your vote's weighted, you know, 100 times the amount someone who only has one. And you might vote on these parameters. You might say, well, I think makers being way too aggressive these days. I don't actually believe that, but say I think it's being way too aggressive and I want to raise the collateral ratio. So, I might, you know, make a proposal to vote on that. People would vote on it. And then it actually would get updated on chain when that happened.
1: So, yeah. So, it's basically. The community is deciding the future of the business, probably say, or the, in this case, the protocol. So they're deciding on it. It's not one person or a centralized group or a board of directors. It's, it's basically the community and people who have invested in the protocol. So it's a much, much to be there. There's this vision that I think that we all think that the future of companies is this. That I, but once again, I go back to the, the recent bruising of, the, of what's happened in the, in the industry. You know, I feel like, do you think it's a setback? to this concept of decentralization or look at just cleaning out all the BS that was out there and now we're going forward, forward with the more stronger companies or decentralized organizations?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think like my view is that I don't think I describe it. Like I think if you think about like DAOs in general, they're basically like really glorifying like shareholder governance in a sense, but because they're software, the shareholders can vote on a lot more things than regular shareholders can right like if you're voting like like if you own like apple stock maybe you vote like once you know a quarter for their for their board meeting or whatever and the vote's kind of like a a year, of yeah. selective. Yeah. Yeah, yeah once a year yes uh, see so i don't even know i don't even own apple stock um <laughs> uh, so you vote once a year and and yeah there's like a selection of things the board's kind of already put up for the vote if you gather a group of shareholders together you can somehow via yeah, some process get something added to the list but it's kind of a pain in crypto anyone can make a proposal to add something to like the slate of things to vote to if enough people, like, say, hey, I think we should actually vote on this, you could then, like, trigger people to actually vote on it. And then, like, the voting happens, the decision gets made, and then it gets implemented. And the reason is these organizations are inherently, like, software-based organizations. Like, if you look at Apple, it involves so many things beyond just software. There's the hardware, there's the manufacturers, there's marketing, sales. For something like MakerDAO, yeah, there is some element of, like, marketing to it, for sure. Um, but most of it is purely, is purely software. And so DAOs are really good at making, like, decisions around, like, you know, what should a certain parameter be? They're not like visionary though, right? Like it's, it's not the future of companies in that sense, but I would say it's probably the future of like shareholder governance.
1: Gotcha. So you're 27 years old from what I calculated and you're, you're chief investment officer of, uh, I think it's 5 billion assets is my understanding. They do more or less depending on where you are, but a it's less. a big number. Okay. A little bit less now. Yes. But it's, it was a, it's a big number. And so obviously that's a, that's a big responsibility. I guess a couple of questions around that. One is, you know, how do you look at, Risk and how? What tools are you using, or you know? Is there one thing that you look for from Sigma from a signal perspective of risk? And and right now in the market, obviously in the last year, you've probably seen a lot happen. And and uh, I don't know if you're hedging against your positions, and ha- how are you dealing with the, vol- the the massive volatility that's happening in the market as a CIO?
0: Yeah, so I I I'd say at Pantera we're we're generally like fairly fairly vol- net long, just because like a lot of if we look at our LP base, it's mostly people who really want exposure to crypto. I think long term, like as the space evolves, like you know, we'll we'll start you know doing more kind of like long short style stuff eventually. But it's just people don't have that large portion of their portfolios in it yet for that to be kind of the strategy people want. But we do do things like um, like trade risk around. So you know, an example of that is like if you look at the market environment over the last year, you know, we took a position last summer that we were pretty bearish on DeFi versus ETH. Over the next five years, I think DeFi is like going to drastically you know change the way finance works. But short term versus ETH, I think it's going to underperform and it has over the last year. I think that underperformance probably continues for a bit. And so we don't have a lot of DeFi exposure right now. If you look at like ETH, you know, we've traded around ETH versus Bitcoin, uh, just trading that trading pair, you know, trying to capture some alpha on that. We don't do that much like, you know, ETH slash Bitcoin versus cash style trading though, mostly just because like one, the the risk if you're wrong is, is very high. Like there's days where crypto goes down 20%, there's days where it goes up 20%. And I forget the stat, but it's like the classic—you know—you miss the five best days in the market. Stat, like your performance is really bad. And uh, it's been a while since I've done the math on that in crypto, but it's—it's even more extreme than it is if you're trading like you know Apple stock or whatever.
1: And so, when you uh, when you look at the markets today, I guess, do you think they go more? They go They're going to be worse than they are today. Like, ETH, Bitcoin, everything's going south, or? You know, today we hit about 18,000, but at the that they were up to 19,000 on Bitcoin, obviously. But it needs, I think it's about 1,500. But it's what's your sense of where we are right now, you know, in the market?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, I think like right now in the market, you have kind of three, three things that are at play. One is you have the Ethereum merge happening, you know, mid September, which is going to be very positive from a, from like a supply standpoint. There's much lower supply going to the market on a daily basis once that happens. Then you have, you know, what's going on with like in- interest rates and inflation. And then the last piece you have is like trend and, and sentiment, like what's the sentiment around the crypto market. And so I think like my view is you kind of like synthesize all of those like very positive. Inflation is trending in the right direction, but you know, Russia shutting off the gas pipeline to, to Europe could be a black swan event that really messes it up come winter if it's still off. and then, um, And then trend and sentiment, Right now there's actually not really a super clear trend in the market. You know, starting in kind of late June or early July, the market kind of regained trend. We went from twelve hundred dollar east to like, you know, eighteen, nineteen hundred dollar east. Right now, kind of most of the trend stuff that I'm looking at, you know, shows that like, you know, current trend, like for if we're above sixteen hundred, we're in an uptrend. And if we're below sixteen hundred, we're in a downtrend. Like that's on like a daily time horizon. So like that, you know, by the time this gets published, you know, like that could that could have be changed serious. already.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And then you guys are also investing in early stage on the crypto companies, but three companies. What, you know, give me a perspective on, you know, how you make those investments. And then tell me like your best and worst in it. You know, what did you learn investing in, in these companies? I and mean, I think you got about a hundred investments or 190, depending on how you count it between coins and actual investing right. directly into the companies. But, you know, what? what's kind of like your perspective on how you do that? And then what's your best and worst that you've done so far in your mind?
0: Yeah, so I, I'd say what we look for is, like, I think the most important thing, it's it's not anything novel, the most, most important thing is, like, team. And, like, basically, if you look at team, it's, like, kind of, like, how, like, perseverant and relentless are they? Um, you know, like, are the people who never give up or, or do they, you know, give up very easily? If something is going wrong, like, the type of people who kind of like defer responsibility or the type of people who like just kind of like 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 the way i describe it's like you see like a, a nail out of place do you like pick up the hammer and knock it back in or, or do you kind of say hey everyone there's a nail out of place um and then the last group of people are very bad founders you want the group and the former to just fix the nail and move on yeah fix things um, yeah yeah basically people who can fix things and move fast and also people who can make decisions like like pretty quickly with without a ton of information there's actually a really interesting study on this that that is like an academic study that came out a few months ago. And it was like, I forget the title, but it was something fairly misleading. It was like, you know, people who who, you know, take a long time to make decisions and consider loss of information, you know, are are are, you know, like superior to those who who make decisions quickly with with you know with the kind of information they have at the time. But then if you look at the actual data behind the study, which I found was fascinating, they were like five percent better. And like if I think about running a company, like the amount of time it took those people to be five percent better or whatever the exact number was, which is pretty minuscule, like yeah. they're gonna be far less successful. So I think team is the most important thing. And then we kind of look at product and market and and analyze those too. What um, are the, like what's the
1: ahead. what's the investment you're most proud of? Yeah. What's the number the one you're like, yeah, maybe not so good, but maybe it's got a future.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think like best investments we've made. There's kind of like two to come to mind off the top of my head. One of them is called uh, Alchemy, so it's it's basically a way that makes it really easy to run Ethereum nodes. We invested in our Series A. Actually, the, the one of the projects I started, Augur, we were actually their first customer, uh, and it's that's how I realized it was a good product. And then the other one is Near, which is the layer one blockchain. Just like from a return multiple standpoint, those have been really really strong for us, and both of them have really good, like they, like they they meet the criteria I just listed on the team side. I'd say like you know, w- worst is like probably not really on the private side, more just like, you know, like like there's not like like I guess what I say is like there there's that one quote that's like, you know, I forget the quote. basically, like i what I would say is like, you know, uh, all bad investments, like they like they kind of like have like a, the same handful of traits. like they're like, you know, basically comes down to like the team either wasn't great or the market just didn't work. And in cases where the team wasn't great. That's something you can kind of take and learn from, and figure out like, what did I diagnose wrong on the team that, that like I shouldn't have backed them, and then on the market side, a lot of the time there is just like you made a plus EV bet and the market didn't show up. You know, it's it's like the market racing quote about how like you know good team meets you know bad market market wins. You know, great great team meets great market market wins. Like it, like the market kind of tries a lot of it. I would say. So there's not really anyone in particular that I would say it's like I really made a bad decision investing in that one. It's more kind of like there's like a collection of ones that that beat those two criteria.
1: Gotcha. Is there like a trade you made that you would then say was like one of your worst trades that you made in the his in your, you know, while you were here?
0: Yeah. Um so I, I, I keep a list of like all all major investing mistakes I've made. I would say um trading wise, the I think like the the biggest mistakes I've made when it comes to trading are. Basically in in like two categories. One is like taking risk off too soon and the other is not taking risk off soon enough. And so like there's an example where we had this position, uh, Matic, which is like a scalability layer two on top of Ethereum. And we bought it at some point in in 2020, I think. And then the price is basically flat for like the longest time. And eventually I kind of said, look, like, like it's been trending flat for a while. There doesn't really seem to be that much market positive sentiment around it. Let's just sell it and, and buy ETH or something. We did that, and sure enough, like six weeks after that, like market sentiment shifted rapidly, and then like it, it kind of started going back up from a price action standpoint. And the mistake wasn't selling it; the mistake was not buying it back once once that that those two things for the reason I had sold it had changed. And then like the, the asset ran up like fifty x, you know, after that point. And so that was like probably I would say my biggest like trading mistake.
1: Did it come back down, or is it just? or was it holding up. Cures. It's come back down yeah, some, I but it's, it's
0: still way up versus so if, versus when you know we sold it.
1: What changed the? That's interesting. Like, what changed the sentiment on it? What what happened that triggered a more positive sentiment on that on that uh, on that coin? I took it.
0: I don't like. Like, I think like part of it was just like the narrative around layer twos started to shift. Like, people started talking about you know how they were really interested in layer twos and and, and like scaling, and I think that was kind of the the main shift there.
1: Gotcha. You, I assume you invested in Terra Luna and, you know, I'm, I'm curious, like, how did that hit you guys hard with the collapse of it? And did that leave any, you know, perspective on, you know, how you want to invest going forward? Another lesson learned, let's say. So,
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I'd say like we, we invested in Terra back in, you know, the summer of 2020. And you know, we invested in like when it was really cheap, I forget the exact, the exact valuation, but it, you know, we invested about $2 million. So it was actually initially a pretty, a pretty small position for us. And then yeah, if you kind of like fast forward 2021, they started getting a lot of traction, um, you know, and then later in 2021, I'd say the problem is they started like really aggressively, really aggressively like subsidizing, like parts of the DeFi stuff built on top of it. And I think they subsidized it so much that, like, when the prices of stuff started to fall, you know, it really kind of like basically death spiraled in a kind of cascading set of, of failures. From an investment standpoint, I actually just pulled it up. So our initial investment was about one point seven million, and we we traded it basically just like de-risking, you know, pretty steadily over the course of like twenty twenty one and then part of twenty twenty two, and you know, we ended up turning them one point seven into about hundred and seventy million for like LPs that kind of at the at the end of the day. But I'd say there is, you know, a couple big lessons there. One is that we were too um at parts of it, I'd say we were too aggressive. Like like going into May of 2022, I'd say our we had too large of a position on in it. Uh like we had to de-risk as much as we should have, I would say. Even though like the overall return on the was still 100 X, you know, I I think we still probably could have de-risked a bit earlier going into May. And then I think the other risk is or the other mistake, it's just like that, I think if we had kind of paid closer attention to like what was happening on chain, like with on chain analytics, you might have been able to see like what was going on a bit more with like the actual subsidies and stuff. And they've been able to exit more at the position sooner. But that's kind of the, the story there.
1: Did you, have you developed your own software to look at all the on chain analytics or are using some, I'm curious, because I assume that's a big part of what you're doing. Because, you know, blockchain, everything's public and see everything that's happening. All the trading that's happening, all the movement of, uh, of tokens. I, uh, did you build your own proprietary tools? Have you done that?
0: <laughs> Not on that side. There's, there's pretty good stuff that like people have built, like specific startups for. So there's there's like if you're looking for like high level kind of like financial metrics, Token Terminal is really good for that. If you're looking for like data on like um, you know specific smart contract stuff, Dune Analytics is good for that. And there's a handful of other kind of like similar projects that, that are good for that sort of thing. The problem with stuff like Terra as an example, though, is like, you either like, like those startups don't really exist because it's like, it's like newer. And if you build it in house, like you could do it, but then like that's all you spent three months on. And then like, you know, you, you probably have a bunch of other problems that you, that you should have been solving instead. And so, um, that stuff I would say it's really good for the Ethereum ecosystem. And there's a lot of just like off the shelf stuff that you can subscribe to and then kind of like, you know, generate queries and queries in a way that like gets you the data you want. It's so, like one thing is if you go to like Dune Analytics, you go to their like dashboards that like the public has made. Sometimes people are collecting the data incorrectly. It's so like you need to massage the data to actually get to like what reality is, stuff like that. Gotcha.
1: So I, I have a couple more questions around, you know, your perspective on traditional finance, uh, knowing of where you are when you're sitting in the finance world. Does it end? Does everything go this way? Does everything go, you know, decentralized? I and mean, what, what's kind of your sense? And obviously, I, I think there's a perspective that after the financial crisis, there was a loss of faith in financial institutions. And there's a sense that they're not there to protect us, per se. It's, there's a lot of self-centered, self, uh, self-dealing havoc, which we would think the world of crypto is supposed to solve a lot of that. But what's your perspective on, you know, traditional finance getting disrupted by this technology?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, I think if you look at traditional finance, they have, there's like two things that traditional finance has, maybe three that are like actually useful. One is they have a customer relationship. Uh, two is they have like, you know, the regulatory licenses and in, in moat. And then, um, you know, I'd say those are, those are kind of the, the main things. The rest, of, there's a lot of drawbacks, right? Like you have like these banks that have huge office footprints, and, and whether it's like their actual offices, whether it's like their bank branches, it's just a huge cost center for the customer, which means you're earning less on your money. And the other problem I'd say is the one advantage, one of the two advantages that I listed, you know, the, the licenses and stuff is also a big cost center, right? And a lot of the reason why they have these, these positions is because they sort of done it via like regulatory capture. Um, like the banks have, you know, huge lobbying arms. Uh, there's a reason why, you know, it's been forever since the US actually like approved a real bank charter. Um, you know, there's always like startup banks that have like, you know, partnerships, other banks, so they have like these kind of, you know, things, but, but actual real charters, I forget the XD year, but it's been a long time. And so I think what, what happens is long-term, I think like this tech disrupts them. And I think there will be, it's not going to destroy all of them though. Like some of them will still be relevant and stay around because of their customer relationship. Like, I think there will be some banks that long-term kind of like plug into this as a UI layer you have to re-architect your business, right? Like you have to shift your business from the same way the New York Times shifted their business from being a business that primarily hands out newspapers that are made of paper to one that has like really good, like digital content. Like you'd have to do the same thing on the bank side. Like, like banks will compete 20 years from now. Banks will compete based on the UI layer and like what the experience is like for the user and then plugging into all this stuff under the hood. I don't think they'll be competing based on like, you know, um, like, like the regulatory moat stuff I think starts to fade as, as this tech becomes more relevant. And also a lot of the reasons why those regulations exist starts starts to fade. There's definitely room for regulation in areas where it makes sense. But a lot of the banking regulations that hasn't exist today, um, you know, you can kind of comply with them via software very easily. And there's some that are much harder and much more complicated problems, like the problem how do you do it AML? That's like a, a yes. really messy problem. Uh, but things like capital requirements and stuff are pretty trivial to do in code.
1: Yeah. So, but don't you think that, I mean, Obviously, the government's starting to regulate crypto, and, and the question is whether they bring all the regulations that they brought to the traditional finance world into crypto. You know, so will the government play a heavy hand in, in regulating crypto in the way that it can't be? It has its same properties and principles. The mo the, the regulatory moat that's created. What's your sense?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I think like one thing that's that's interesting here is if you look at like american like let's just use america as 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 a simple example, so we don't have to deal with all the different countries. But if you think about it the u s right I forget the exact numbers, but it's something north of ten percent and something probably south of twenty percent of Americans own crypto and If you look at things like that that a very sizable percentage of Americans do, it's really hard to like permanently like constrain them a lot because it it makes people upset and one example of this is like yeah, it took a long time, but if you look at kind of like the liberalization of like marijuana policy and law, right? Like, like you can literally like like go anywhere, you know, any major city in the US and what, whether it's like CBD or actual like marijuana, like you can just buy it. And like 20 years ago, that was basically unheard of. And so I think like if you look at it from a financial standpoint, um, this is sort of that except far more people in percentage terms own crypto than use marijuana in the US. And so like if you look at like from a regulatory standpoint, there might be some regulators who want to do things, but and, and some of those things that they want to do actually make sense, to be clear, right? I'm not like you know, anti-regulation. I just think it needs to actually make sense with the tech. But then if you look at Congress, they're going to have all these constituents who don't want, they, like their constituents don't want, people who own crypto don't want it to just be like de facto captured by the banking system, right? Like that's like the least interesting outcome and also would probably make most of their investments go to zero. Uh, we're near zero, and so like there's this huge incentive from from the standpoint of Congress to not let the regulators get too heavy-handed in how they go about regulating the space. And so I think what you'll actually see from some kind of people I've been speaking to is that I think you'll see eventually Congress start to kind of pass some legislation to try to basically get ahead of the regulators. You know, doing things like passing le- legislation legislation around like rules surrounding like stable stablecoins. Like, if you're USDC, where do you have to store your money? Eventually, I think they'll eventually get to things like like, you know, DeFi, like if you're a developer building a DeFi protocol, like, you know, like maybe you need to like have an audit uh, or have, a, you know, like, like, I don't know, like, like it's far out there, but I think you know, that's where it ends long-term.
1: Hmm. What's your perspectives on when you think of the, the change in crypto over the last, you know, 10, 12 years since Bitcoin in 2008 to today and the community around it and the, obviously the, 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 the people changed from like it was like sovereign individuals. Now it's I call them all. It's more like community of soder, sovereign people, but they're part of a community, and even though they've always been a part three. They don't have that sovereign individual feel as much, I think, as the game. Like we're hiding from the government and you know, like John McAfee type of person. It seems like it's shifting. But what do you think about the culture side of it? And is it shifted for the better or for worse? Where's it going in your perspectives? You know, it seems like all of this is interconnected into the success of these platforms.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, it, I think it's definitely evolved a lot since when I got into the space, just like out of like necessity, and also just out of like statistics, right? Like, like, if you're hearing about, you know, like this money that someone created, that's not, you know, money created by a government, and it's like this weird thing on the internet that you like mine it with your, you know, processor or your GPU, like, you have to be kind of weird to come across that, like, as it starts to get adopted, you know, the community gets less weird, it gets more diverse, the, the culture kind of, you know, shifts. And then like, I think the next big shift in culture was like when Ethereum came out, because then it brought in this whole group of people who weren't just like monetary policy nerds, you know, like, like the early kind of community was a lot of like gold bugs, people who like kind of didn't like the way the Fed was doing things with smart contracts, like, like with the advent of Ethereum, with smart contracts, you then open up all this universe of people who like want to do stuff in finance want to do stuff with like video games and like Web3 stuff. And I think as that community has gotten larger, you now have a very wide range of people, you know, all the way from like the most right wing person you could imagine, to the most left wing person you could imagine, you know, who are all like using this tech and building in this space. And it's it's a pretty wide range of viewpoints. I guess like to answer your question about it, is that good? Definitely. Because like if you think about like the thing that's the biggest risk to the tech, I don't think it's actually a software issue anymore. You know, three years ago I would have said scaling. At this point, it's just like the like the regulatory environment and like, you know, the Congress like gets it wrong, messes it up. But if you have a very wide group of people using something, it, it doesn't really become as much of a partisan issue. Like crypto is something the Democrats care about and the Republicans care about, and the people who hate both of those terms care about. Um, which is which is nice. You don't have that many of those things these days.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That definitely doesn't have one group of it or left or right or woke or not, whatever it is, only the larger portion of, of that. I guess one of the things that we all thought about was that under inflationary, you know, what's happening with inflation, that uh, this would substitute out for gold. Bitcoin would substitute out for gold since it's not printed by the government and can't be, you know, over-created and it has an endpoint to it of how many coins could be actually minted. It didn't seem to play out that way. It, it, from my perspective, it played out like tech. It played out the tech market, which my stock's part of. We all went down pretty hard and crypto's gone down pretty hard. It feels like it's correlated to tech investors, not to people who normally buy gold and they're going to use this as a gold substitute. What, what's your perspective? Why, why do you think it, it didn't become a hedge for inflation?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think a couple of things. I think, I think one is that the universe of people who own crypto now is much larger. And so like a lot of them own you know, tech stocks and stuff. You know, I I don't really for the most part, but a lot of people do, especially a lot of larger kind of like institutional investors. And if you look at like what people are gonna like, you know, de-risk when the markets like, you know, when when the sky is falling, quote unquote, people sell like their most most volatile and most liquid assets. And and like you look at crypto, well it checks both those boxes. You know, the crypto markets is a percentage of like um as a percentage of float, like the daily trading volume is far more liquid than almost anything else out there. It's on par with like Apple stock in percentage terms. And then volatility wise, it's also really high at the charts. So like if you're like a, you know, traditional macro fund, you got 5% in Bitcoin and you want to de-risk, you know, you tell the traders, de-risk your most volatile stuff and they're going to go sell your Bitcoin. And so I think that's part of it. I also think part of it is that like, if you look at Ethereum, etc., it does look more like tech. Like, like you could envision like being used as kind of this monetary unit or something. But like, you know, the way it's getting priced is that's a, a tech revolution with, with finance, and I guess the last thing I would say is, you know, if you, if you look at like the, like if you, if you look at like the like um, correlations between crypto and traditional assets, you know, I think it tends to kind of like markets are like forward leading, right? So like when inflation was low and the Fed was doing a bunch of aggressive monetary policy stuff, crypto did go way up, and then once inflation actually like got here and then the Fed started tightening, you know, it came back down. So I, I think there's also some element where it kind of it leads inflationary movements as opposed to actually goes up during them.
1: Good. And so my last question is as a as an entrepreneur yourself, you know, what what do you um and being, you know, one of the leaders of your company, you know, what's sort of like your basic philosophy around culture or, you know, how you run the business or what you know we all I have one like never quit. Never, never quit, especially on your bad days. Like you gotta look through it, you know, because I've been doing this for 27 years plus. Kind of what what's sort of a basic philosophy you have about building a business as a startup growing it stuff like that
0: yeah i I definitely agree with that one like i think like you know what i would say is like you know like like don't say like why something's not possible there's always a thousand reasons why something's not possible but like there usually is at least one way you can figure out how to actually do it i think also like culturally like you know i like people who are like pretty honest like upfront uh people who kind of like take initiative really quickly i think like also like kind of like low ego but high passion like like people kind of like tend to conflate the two like i'm totally happy to have like a super passionate debate with some someone about something um but like i think like like some people like assume that means that it's like an ego thing but but it's actually not like especially with engineers like yeah if you walk into like an engineering meeting you know you might see two engineers really rigorously debating something and if you brought somebody who wasn't an engineer into that meeting they might think that these two people hate each other but actually like they're like best friends they're just like trying to get to the root of like the actual answer which is something that I, i i really value a lot And then I would say the last kind of philosophy thing I have is like on hiring, like the thing I've noticed the most is like when you have people who can like do three things, Elon Musk actually sent me an email about this recently, like they can either like solve the problem head on, if they're blocked, surface why they're blocked, or if they don't understand it, like they don't understand their task, they ask for clarification as opposed to just like trying to like guess what they should do if people can do those like three things, they generally are, are very effective. If, if they can't do any of them, they're very, they are generally very unaffected. And if they can do like two out of three, like they might work or they might not. And I think like thinking like that is actually really useful. It's like, it sort of makes people accountable for things. Like the, the thing I really don't like in a culture is like when people like just kind of complain about a bunch of problems. It's like, it's like, that doesn't make sense. Like what you should do is like, solve the problem yourself if you can, if not service it to the person who can solve it. And like that's how you like iterate and move forward. So like those are kind of the the values that I say are really would say are really important.
1: Yeah, I I call it the parable of the cow in the ditch. Someone once told me that, you know, when there's a cow in the ditch, what do you do? It's a question I ask sometimes and you know, at a a leader like when I look my leaders were having a problem, like, there's a cow in the ditch, what do you want to do? And and I said there's three people who were standing around the cow. One's one was complaining of how bad, you know, cow is in the ditch and why did this happen to us and God, we suck. The other person was trying to, you know, point to the cow. It's fat. And, you know, why'd it get so fat? And if it wasn't for so and so, dug <laughs> the hole. And so and then I, I tell them the story. I said, well, who, who's, what's, what's the right thing to do? You know, who, who's got the right answer? Which one of these three personalities? And, and I always say, like, it's, it's none of them. It's just get the fucking cow out of the ditch. Like, get the cow out of the, then he can analyze why it got in the dish. Then he can make sure so you don't uh-huh. ever have a cow go in the ditch again. <laughs> but if the cow dies in the ditch <laughs> all the other stuff doesn't matter. So I guess the same right. sort of thing, just get the cow out of the ditch. Right. So, so yeah, Joey, yeah, exactly. um, th- 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 thank you for being on the show. I think it's really great. You have a newsletter, I think you guys put out. I saw also do, you, and, and so I think it'd be great if anyone follow, follow Joey, one of the true professionals in this industry, that's a new industry, obviously. Uh, especially around what you want to invest in and all that and once again I want to appreciate uh, you coming on the show and sharing your uh, expertise with us and with all the uh, listeners thanks
0: awesome yeah thanks for having me